engaging sexual language for the first time in a poetic, arousing way, especially when they're talking about their fantasy six months from now that they've never engaged. And you can tell, like, this is a couple that maybe is going to go home and have sex because they kind of got each other a little turned on in the session. your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Today we'll be talking to psychotherapist and sex therapist Ian Kerner. He specializes in working with couples and individuals who struggle with sexual and relational issues. He is the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including She Comes First, which continues to be the most bestselling sex advice book in the last decade. He has made appearances on The Today Show, Dr. Oz, NPR, and regularly speaks on CNN Health. We are honored to have him as a guest and have him share with us his wisdom around sexual problems, how to talk about them with your partner, and what to do about them. Welcome, Ian. Thank you. Happy to have you here. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ian, how did you come to specialize in sex and sex therapy? Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely didn't uh, grow up wanting to be a sex therapist. Um, but when I was in college, um, I was uh, kind of a sexual disaster uh, at the time. <laughs> and um, I, I just think I was a source of much frustration to any partner I had at the time. And uh, one of the women I was dating cared enough about me and the relationship, to be honest, and to say, I think that uh, we would really benefit from therapy talking about our sex life. And so in college, I ended up seeing a sex therapist for the first time. And it was an incredibly transformative experience. Uh, The relationship failed disastrously. But really um, being able to talk to somebody, being being able to get over my shame, being able to have somebody help me find words to express what I was thinking and feeling and um, and finding my experiences reflected back and normalized was incredibly transformative and really changed my life. And so uh, many years later, when I was um, deciding to uh, change my life a little bit, this was uh, the field that I really wanted to pursue. And, um, you know, I really, I grew up in an era without the internet, um, without any real sources of information. There were no men's magazines. Um, so there was really nothing uh, except the works of like Alfred Kinsey and Masters and Johnson and Cher Height, which were uh, really appealing and alluring, but also extremely technical and uh, distancing. So yeah, so that was... Um, kind of the formative uh, experience that led me to become a sex therapist. And I think in my book, She Comes First, I'm pretty candid. I open with the lines, Confessions of a Premature Ejaculator, which was probably (laughs) the hardest thing I ever had to write or say or do. But um, I think it continues to be part of what makes the book resonate. And I continue almost every day to get an email from some man or his partner somewhere who is dealing with that issue and came across She Comes First. 
Well, it takes an incredible amount of courage to admit that, but also I think it's really validating for your readers to know that someone else and a lot of people actually experience the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Normalization is a key part of uh, sex therapy, um, normalizing through um, empathy, through insight, through scientific scientific information, I think more than other branches of of therapy, just the process of uh, reflecting and normalizing what somebody is going through is is incredibly important. And people don't talk about sex enough. Um, You know, when we talk to our friends and and also patients, um, really the the conversation, there aren't many conversations around sex and sexuality and people sit with with their sexual problems or their concerns by themselves, typically. Yeah, I totally agree. You can be lying in bed right next to somebody and feel a million miles apart. And there's just sort of this um, abyss of uh, silent desperation. And it's interesting the way couples learn to talk about almost every topic. I mean, I have couples who come in here, they've been together five years, 10 years, sometimes 30 years. And they are masters in the art of communicating about their kids and about money and about politics and about real estate and about in-laws and friends and family. But when it comes to sex, they're mute. What do you think it is that blocks those conversations? Well, I think, first of all, from a very early age, Very few of us grew up in really sex-positive homes. At best, maybe we grew up in sex-neutral homes where it sort of wasn't discussed, but maybe we could discern from our primary attachment figures, our parents, that, oh, they don't seem to hate each other and there's this thing that seems to bond them intimately. I mean, I think that's a good case scenario where we're kind of lucky to get a little bit of... uh, modeling, uh, positive modeling. But I think so. I think most of us grow up in sex neutral or sex negative homes. Um, I think that um, sex is a, is a real um, area of vulnerability. I mean, I just think it's that. It's that it's an area of vulnerability and we're not in the habit of sharing vulnerabilities or getting our vulnerabilities reflected back. And so... I think instead um, we let our more defensive or our more rational parts of ourselves sort of have the conversation or avoid the conversation. I think of the other model where we learn about sex is from mainstream media or films and all of the romantic films that I can think of, especially growing up, you see this kind of romantic and passionate relationship. And then as soon as they go into the bedroom, the door is closed and the film cuts to the next scene. And so you kind of are left to the imagination of, oh, sex must be perfect behind closed doors, when in reality, a lot of problems come up. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think um, I do a lot of work with couples. I mean, certainly the work that they're doing here in therapy is incredible in terms of just finding language. And sex therapy, um, it can be very provocative and proactive. Like you can't come into this room and be on the couch and talk about your sex life without really engaging the language of sex. I mean, I, in a first session, I always have sort of three areas that I intend to really cover in like the first hour. The first is I really want to understand 
the problem that somebody's experiencing. And sometimes they can barely utter the problem, but I can really help them find language to express the problem. The second thing I often ask them is if in three to six months of working together, they felt like they could come in one day and say, you know, not to say everything's perfect, but things sure are a lot better. Um, we really sort of got on the other side of that impasse um, and we're, we're ready to keep working on things. I would say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to be on the other side of that impasse? Describe to me the kind of sex or the kind of connection you'll be having. And that really gets people sort of visualizing. Um, but the third thing that I always ask a couple, especially, which can get very uh, dicey, is I ask them to tell me about the last time they had sex. And I have a very specific methodology of assessment where from how desire is manifest and communicated to how arousal is generated to the kinds of activities that they engage in to the types of pleasure and gratification and orgasms that they have that uh, they're going to tell me the whole thing as though like we're going through a scene blow in by slow blow. motion no blow by blow <laughs> and so that yeah, can be, be tough for people that can be very um, yeah. you know challenging um, and liberating yeah and then every session always ends with some piece of homework that's co-constructed and so that's sort of how the first session works but I would say by the end of the session um, couples are really talking and there's some real language and the other thing that I really believe that's different about communicating about sex than other topics like kids, in-laws, money, arguments, is that um, the language of sex is actually arousing. It actually has a physiological and neurological effect on the body. And so unlike other types of communication, there is a real poetry to it. And so a lot of the times in sessions, you know, couples are engaging sexual language for the first time in a poetic arousing way especially when they're talking about their fantasy six months from now that they've never engaged and you can tell like this is a couple that maybe is going to go home and have sex because they kind of got each other a little turned on in the session yeah and what are the types of issues people come in with uh why do people seek sex therapy yeah i would say um the number one issue, so I work with um, individuals, couples, both heterosexual and LGBTQ. And so my practice is pretty evenly split up in that way. I would say the main issue that couples of, of all um, stripes and orientations are dealing with um, is usually desire discrepancy. So either they are stuck in a sex rut of some sort. With men, um, probably the main issue I deal with is erectile disorder, and then premature ejaculation, and then also delayed ejaculation. In women, um, arousal, orgasm, sexual pain issues. Um, oftentimes with men, I'll be addressing um, erotic conflicts in some ways. Uh, people whose sexual desires, sexual templates run counter to 
what they perceive to be their own values, their family's values, their partner's values, society's values. Um, I have so many questions. (laughs) (laughs) Problematic sexual behaviors. Yeah. (laughs) What someone would come in describing as like sex addiction, although I don't subscribe to that language per se or that model, but somebody coming in with problematic sexual behaviors like feeling like they're addicted to pornography, um, navigating infidelity, and wanting to usually recover and heal the sexual part of their relationship, which is often the last part to heal in infidelity, and lately working with couples around consensual non-monogamy and uh, opening up their relationship uh, in some way. So many people believe that sexual problems are a symptom of maybe a bigger underlying relational problem. I mean, would you agree that this is typically the case or is it is it the case that couples can come in and just purely have a problem in sex that has nothing to do with how they are relationally? In fact, they're actually quite satisfied in other areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, it's interesting because couples will come in and I know that if they found me, that there's a sexual issue. They're just not going to look for me and find me somehow if there isn't really something sexual going on. And so I usually know that that is um, um, uh, implicit. Um, So um, I try and honor that. So I really try and create a space where we can honor the sexual complaint and the sexual concern because usually in therapy it will get directed away from it will get um, parked over here for later. Um, it'll get avoided. Um, I mean, I see a lot of individuals and couples who have been to three to five different therapists, and the issue still hasn't been substantially addressed. Um, so first and foremost, I want to create a space that honors sexuality as its own element, as its own worthwhile topic. Um Yes, you do need to be in the kind of, to have good, fun, healthy, satisfying sex. You probably need to be, you do need to be in the kind of relationship that supports that. You need to have trust. You need to feel safety. You need to like your partner. But I think that there is a misconception in couples therapy that if you focus on the relationship, if you focus on the attachment somehow, sex will automatically fix itself. And I work with um, a lot of couples who I would say are in um, very strong, uh, mature, egalitarian relationships where they're considerate, they're ethical, they're responsible, they treat each other as equals, there's fair divisions of labor. but being in an egalitarian, in a in a in a good functioning egalitarian relationship, does not add up to a good functioning sex life. I mean, sex is often about um, power and um, about different dynamics. So, I guess does that answer your questions? Like sometimes it's all embedded together, and there are relationship issues and sexual issues. But very often, people are coming to me and saying, "This is my primary complaint. This is the thing." I need to address. And how do you help couples when, so if they're coming in with this primary, the the issue that you see the most with couples where there's a mismatched libido, Mm -hmm. um, how do you help them tap into this more sexual part of themselves and and find sexuality in their relationship again? Yeah. 
It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, um, I think it's the most common complaint. I think it's the hardest thing to address. I think desire is a little like the stock market. It's incredibly dynamic. It's informed by scores of different underlying factors. It's multiply determined in that it's never just um, one thing. Um, how do you how do how do you address it? Um, well, I yeah. Another way, I mean, another way I might frame it is how how can couples sustain intimacy, right? Sexual intimacy in their relationship. Okay. Like what are, what's required? Yeah. yeah, I guess you know one of the things that I come across is really there are um, two types of desire. Um, there is spontaneous desire, which is the kind of desire that I think we see in the movies very often. A couple sees each other, they give each other a sexy glance, and they rip off each other's clothes, and they don't have to work at sex at all. It just sort of seems to be this spontaneous reaction that happens when you have chemistry with somebody. And clearly, that's a media stereotype. Like, you know, if you've been in any long-term relationship for any period of time, you know that sex doesn't operate that way. And yet, I think it's confusing because in the beginning of a relationship, or I think that there are moments we can all relate to, whether you're a man or a woman, when you felt that kind of spontaneous sexual desire. Now, statistically, the way it works out is about 75 to 80% of men experience spontaneous desire. So that's how desire works for them. From the age of a teenager, when they're experienced, they're experiencing their first masturbatory ejaculations to, you know, the day they die, where maybe they're only getting an erection once every three or four months. Um, desire is still experienced spontaneously. And men are very fortunate in that their view of desire kind of maps up, maps up to the cultural representation of desire. But 75 to 80% of women do not experience spontaneous desire. They experience responsive desire. And responsive desire means just that, that desire is responding to something that comes before it. So most of us think, well, if I have desire and my partner has desire, then we'll get going. If one of us or both, if we don't feel desire, then nothing will happen. And we sort of think of desire as the starting point. But responsive, the responsive desire model really presumes that something needs to come before desire, that desire isn't the first thing that happens. It may happen somewhere down the line. And the thing that desire really responds, responsive desire responds to is arousal, pleasure, um, the generation of some kind of subjective arousal in, in oneself. Um, so usually the reason that I'm encountering uh, sex ruts or desire discrepancy is because there's confusion about the desire paradigm of the relationship. It is assumed that desire should be spontaneous and it's not happening spontaneously. It's one of the reasons that we have so many um, female Viagra um, medications up for FDA approval, which is the with, with the goal of fixing female desire, making it more spontaneous. So this is a long way of saying that 
almost all the time there is one partner who maybe experiences more spontaneous desire than the other partner and one partner who experiences more responsive desire and as soon as there's any respond as soon as one person in the relationship is experiencing responsive desire really the paradigm of the whole relationship needs to be a responsive desire paradigm and that requires a, then a real shift in how you approach sex and you have to have the willingness to commit to kind of generating the kind of arousal or pleasure that will lead to the gradual emergence of desire so i work with a lot of couples to kind of slow down go back to the beginning and engage in arousal generating activities um, that create pleasure, create arousal, and lead to the emergence of desire. The other piece of it though, that's really important is that when I say arousal and pleasure, your our brains probably first go to physical arousal and physical pleasure and touch. And that is indeed, you know, very important. But the other thing that's really absent for so many couples in so many ways is um, psychogenic arousal or the generation of uh, fantasies, the generation of just sort of brain-based mental arousal. And so many couples um, are not sharing fantasies with their partner. The generation of responsive desire isn't just limited to creating physical pleasure and physical arousal. It's also about creating um, erotic um, connection. Mm. I don't know. Did that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And also, I imagine it must be so huge for women to hear, you know, this idea about responsive desire, yeah. because I think many women feel like something's wrong with me that I'm not experiencing the same spontaneous desire as my Absolutely. partner, my male partner. Absolutely. You know who writes about this very well? I don't know if you're going to have her on our podcast is Emily Nagoski, who wrote a book called Come As You Are. Uh, she's a colleague and she writes very uh, uh, eloquently about uh, spontaneous and responsive desire. But yes, many women feel broken. Like I can't tell you how many couples come in and the guy says, you know, I'm the one that always has to initiate and uh, why, why, why do I always have to step up to bat or pitch and strike out or whatever? And, and women will sit there and say, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. I sort of want to want sex, but I don't want it. What's wrong with me? And I think that people are very um, sort of um, confused and even um, crippled by the spontaneous desire paradigm. Interestingly, though, as men go through long-term relationships, their, their desire in the relationship can sometimes shift from spontaneous to responsive. And so I think a lot of men also feel very um, hobbled by the spontaneous desire paradigm too. Um, because if you're a guy and you're one of the 20% of men, um, or for other reasons, your experience of desire is responsive, you can wonder, well, what's wrong with me? I'm supposed to be a guy. I'm supposed to be a walking hard on. I'm supposed to be able to get turned on in the blink of an eye. Masculinity. Yeah. yeah. So I think the, the model, the shift from a spontaneous desire model to a responsive desire model is really liberating for, for men and women. 
So I'm wondering, I mean, what do you attribute to this low libido? I mean, I imagine it's it could be different for genders, but what happens? Mm-hmm. I mean, as you described, like the initial spark of a relationship, a lot of spontaneity mm-hmm. happens and both partners can be really sexually aroused very easily. So why over the long term does this plummet downwards? Yeah, well, I mean, I think desire is something that needs to be nurtured and 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 cultivated as, a, as an energy. I mean... Um, um, your sexual health is very much a function of your overall health. So certainly, um, exercise, uh, stress levels, how you're feeling in your relationship, how you're feeling in your body, your lifestyle, the extent to which you get a good night's sleep or don't, you drink every night, all of that, um, has a, plays a big role in, um, desire, um, I think in the beginning of a relationship, um, Helen Fisher, the anthropologist who's done a lot of brain scans of people who are in the process of falling in love, has outlined sort of three brain systems that um, operate to sort of create the sort of courtship process. And the first brain state that gets sort of activated is a seeking system that's sort of unfocused and very testosterone focused. So you're sort of out there just seeking connection, hopefully. Um, And then somebody sort of gets through, right? Somebody gets through that sort of uh, unfocused seeking system, and we become very focused on somebody. And that go that continues to be a testosterone-based system, but also becomes a very dopamine-driven system. So when you combine dopamine with testosterone, you have somebody who's incredibly sexually motivated. And all of that motivation is being um, sort of metabolized through the process of romantic love and a process of self-expansion. I mean, if you think about it in the beginning of a relationship, I mean, I've fallen in love with somebody. I don't know this person. This person doesn't know me. There's so much to learn about each other. And there's a real process of mutual self-expansion, which literally is fuel. It is fuel to for desire. And I think at a certain point in a relationship, um, the process of self-expansion sort of starts to slow down. And unless we are actively engaging on continuing to expand ourselves individually and as couples relationally, we can fall into lots of different types of um, ruts. Um, another way of thinking about it is sort of through the lens of um, how Stephen Mitchell and Esther Perel talk about it, which is that um, relationships are kind of built on um, a kind of predictab- a predictability, a dependency, uh, a transparency, a sense of responsibility, and sex is kind of based on the opposite, right? I mean, we're not thinking about any of those things when we're attracted to somebody. Nope. It's <laughs> adventure, mystery. Yeah. 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 So there's a, a few different. How long does that beginning phase tend to last? Because that's a great experience falling in love with somebody and yeah. being, you know, excited about yeah. sex. And yeah. When you experience, how long does that yeah. last? Yeah. And so we're talking about the middle phase, right? The first phase would be sort of just unfocused oh, testosterone-based okay. seeking, right? right? Okay. And that can yeah. include casual sex, hooking up, 
dating, uh, and hopefully we're motivated to do all of that. That would be healthy. I work with a lot of my patients, you know, around sort of uh, shoring up their seeking system. Mm -hmm. And then somebody gets through and we suddenly go from unfocused to focused and we're in the infatuation system, the romantic love system, the limerence system. And then gradually, if you stay together long enough, you probably move into a more um, cooled down attachment based system. Not to say it can't have a lot of sexual chemistry and sexual desire to it, but it's probably not the roller coaster um, of that middle phase. And so you're asking, how long does that middle the phase middle last? Phase, yeah. uh, how long? <laughs> you tell me. You're both married. You're both in it. I don't know. Anywhere from like six months to two years, yeah, maybe. maybe that's, that's a rough yeah. estimate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a sort of, it's certainly a high, and it's always really exciting. The, the, the. The hard thing, I think, is that a lot of people have this expectation and this feeling of falling in love with the feeling of falling in love. And mm -hmm. so they're seeking that high. Mm -hmm. And so they might be seeking that high for a lifetime, Absolutely. even though the actual phase is very short. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. in many ways, it sets a lot of couples up for, for failure. Because when that does die down, which it naturally does, I think for most people, then you feel like there's something wrong with the relationship or you want to seek out another relationship to, to kind of get that yeah. feeling. You, you know, what's hard about that phase too is that I think that couples can have really fundamental differences in sexual temperament that kind of get masked over um, by the sort of neurochemical cocktail of infatuation. So I've met many people who fall in love have great sex in the beginning of a relationship and then a year into it or 18 months realize like how did this happen like I am such a novelty seeker I'm such a thrill seeker I love peak experiences and I pursue peak experiences everywhere in my life including sexually and my partner is such a couch potato about sex or such a comfort creature you know so it's interesting that also that that period really masks over differences in sexual temperament. You know what else I'm thinking is a big libido killer is moving in with someone. Oh, it's the worst. Because it does take a lot of the mystery out of yeah. a relationship. You go from every time you see each other to being excited and wanting to spend time with each other to every time you see each other, it's default. Right. And seeing all of the kind of, you take that little cloak of invisibility of all the kind of imperfections of someone and yeah. you're really looking at it. You're like doing each other's laundry. and it's, Yeah, it's yeah. not the sexiest not sexy. thing in the world. <laughs> I kind of always think of relationships as like Venn diagrams, like I have my circle, you have your circle, I have my personhood, you have your personhood. And I guess in the beginning, you want a lot of overlap, but you don't really get a lot of overlap, right? You have like this thin slice of overlap that just leaves you wanting more. more. And yeah. you probably think you want total overlap, and then you move in and you get like total overlap, and it's really scary. The enmeshment, the overlap. And then you want to escape. Then yeah. it feels like you want to escape. Yeah. So yeah. how do you help couples create more independent space for each other in the context of sex? Um, how do I help? Well, I mean, I certainly... Um, I mean, I also really believe that the brain is the biggest sex organ and that um, I'm really a big fan of psychogenic arousal and so that means i'm a big fan of 
exploring your fantasies and exploring your unique turn-ons. Uh, one of my favorite books on the topic is Jack Marin's The Erotic Mind, and he really spends a lot of time talking about people's core erotic themes and how you get a core erotic theme and what you do with your core erotic theme. So I'm very interested in couples bringing their sexual individuality to the relationship and finding a, a space where they can cultivate and nurture and share each other's erotic themes with one another. So I would say that's an example where your sexual relationship can really be uh, a great boon to the development of your individual sexuality as well. And I work with many couples who are on fantastic journeys of um, sharing their sort of uh, inner sexual um, yearnings and um, and um, but also many couples who are not and who are um, you know very private and very uh, separated um, so I, I would say that um, opening up your thinking about your core erotic themes sharing them with your partner creating a play space is probably the most powerful way to build your relationship as well as um, continue to evolve your individual sexuality. I'm certainly a big proponent of um, masturbation and creating a, a space where you get to explore and celebrate your own sexuality, however that looks. And um, I think um, more and more couples are also starting to find an interest in open relationships and consensual non-monogamy and realizing they can't be everything to each other and especially sexually and creating a little more of an individual space it's i think we're just at the very beginning of that but i'm finding that a lot of couples are coming in a little more um with that expectation already front of mind can you talk a little bit more about open relationships and how you help couples to talk about opening up a relationship if that's an idea that they have? Um, yeah. You know what's involved. <clears throat> um, what it what it means to have an open relationship too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty uh, elastic and a pretty broad term, but um, I think I think a lot of couples still come in. Um, having been um, raised uh, in the paradigm of sexual exclusivity and monogamy, right? I think the vast majority of couples still are sort of looking for a, a soulmate or looking for a lifelong partner. and uh, Yeah, yeah. And that's what the media, yeah. I mean, in media, yeah. that's also, the, you know. Yeah, and you know, I found that a lot with gay couples too. I know that there's a lot of emphasis on gay couples being more open to non-monogamy and being monogamish, but... Even within that, I find a lot of uh, discrepancy. And one version, person's version of non-monogamy is not at all another person's version of non-monogamy. <clears throat> so I think, you know, generally um, a couple might come in and they have sort of been traveling down the monogamy highway and um, they want to work on some sort of sexual problem or expanding their sexual horizons in some way. And very often they've done that work on their own or they will um, come in here to, to do that work. And sometimes sometime at some point along the way, I may just sort of introduce the idea of consensual non-monogamy in terms of saying sort of like, 
you know, there, there are a few doors or a few pathways in front of you. One is, do you continue to do this work of sort of just the two of you, you know, making your bedroom or wherever you have sex, some sort of playground of discovery? Is there more to be done, more to be discovered, more play structures to be erected? Some will say yes, some will say no. And if the answer is really no, well, um, are you willing to open up the relationship in some way, some ways, some way? So I have a lot of couples who um, have uh, both have a desire for some more sexual adventure, and especially in a city like New York, feel like, you know, maybe it's time to go to our first sex party together and just watch. And I have a lot of couples who I've sort of um, helped with that. Um, and so there is this, um, I guess, one version of op opening up a relationship is a pursuing some shared sexual adventurousness, uh, going to a sex party together, inviting somebody else into your bedroom, having group sex, uh, swinging. And it's been interesting. I've watched a lot of couples make that uh, transition. Um, and then I think after that sort of shared version of, of non-monogamy, there's uh, more kind of serious, not serious, more what we would come to think of as consensual non-monogamy, where somebody, a couple is agreeing to rules around which they can have some sort of extra relational sexual activity, whether it's... Um, and I think that often gets tricky. Like, I have a lot of couples who have come in who have said, we are ready to um, open up our relationship and we're here to work on the rules. I've had couples who have come in with their own rule books already written. And I'm not kidding you. I have seen 50, 60 page documents <laughs> that are usually email based. Yeah. Like they've usually printed out email correspondences and have said, this is our rule book. And like they want me to read it and learn it and comment on it. And I think that that shows you how interesting and complicated an endeavor this is to embark upon. And very often, couples are up for some sort of form of consensual non-monogamy, but they just have radically different visions of what's going to be fulfilling. So one partner might, might say, you know, if we only sort of have casual sex and we limit it to three times with one person and you never develop a primary relationship and never really like the person, that works perfectly. And the other partner says, that sounds horrible, right? I want to like somebody. I want to get to know somebody. Now, I don't want to fall in love with somebody. I don't see that person as being a threat to our relationship, but I sure as hell really want to know somebody. And that's incredibly threatening. So it's about getting the partners on the same page. Yeah. So are there particular sexual problems where you do recommend opening up a relationship? Um, particular sexual problems where I do like, what would that be? Can yeah, you help me out? Uh, yeah. What would that? Or I mean, issues is that a couple is bringing and and like when you recommend opening up a relationship? I never recommend it. I just. Raise it as a possibility. Okay, okay, got it. As an idea. Like, it was very interesting. I had a couple in here. Um, I've been working with them for a couple of months, and they're married. They have a child, and um, there's been some real sexual problems. So 
He's been very frustrated by the lack of sex. She's also frustrated by her lack of interest in the sex and also just by his whole general demeanor around sex. And so they just have not been able to get it figured out. And we were doing, I mean, for months we were just doing a lot of creative sex therapy exercises, um, you know, around that whole responsive desire paradigm. Um, I have this exercise that I call a willingness window where I ask couples to take a half hour once or twice a week to not have sex, but to just bring their willingness to generate arousal with each other. And then we'll talk about what are those arousal generating activities going to be. Some couples will say, I really miss making out. I really miss French kissing. I want to have like great hot makeout sessions. Um, uh, some couples will say, I miss taking a shower together that didn't have to lead to sex, but it was just sensual. I had one couple who were both wrestlers who said, we used to wrestle early in our relationship. Let's freaking wrestle again. Um, in those willingness windows, um, I'll often ask couples to do psychogenic activities like share fantasies with each other, read erotica, watch ethical porn with each other, have these like sort of side-by-side sexually stimulating assignments. I asked one couple, we came up, I always co-construct this, we came up with like a Sunday activity where they would go out, have brunch, drink a little wine, get a little drunk, and then do some lingerie shopping uh, for an afternoon and come home with like three or four different, you know, um, outfits that they could, that they agree would be sexy. And so I was working with this couple and everything was just sort of coming up a bust. And um, they came in, um, this was really not long ago, and they said, we've decided uh, to separate and uh, just this issue just continues to aggravate us and we don't feel like we're making any progress. And really at the very end of the session, uh, where they were pretty bent on separating, I asked them if they had um, considered non-monogamy, if they'd really done everything within the structure of their relationship. And we really opened up a conversation um, and they left. And I really thought that they were gone. It was the last session. Um, they said they would be in touch. It was a depressing session. It was an angry session. And then I got a call about six weeks later saying, you know, after you talked about that, the non-monogamy, it really sort of lit a fire under both of us. And we found we were both very creatively sort of woken and inspired by that. And for the last six weeks, we've been working on opening up our marriage and can we come in and share what's been happening in the process. Wow. That's lovely. Yeah. You know what I also hear? I mean, in addition to the, the sex exercises or the non-physical sex exercises mm-hmm. that you were mentioning, opening up the relationship similarly takes the pressure off the couple and their sex, sexual sure. issues. Sure. That there, it really gives a lot more space and room to kind of explore, discover without the focus on one person's problem or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, for the, It doesn't work for everyone. Like, it would never actually work in my relationship. I come home and I sometimes talk to my wife about this stuff and what's happening, and she's like, no way. That just does not feel right for me in any way. I would rather break up if we ever uh, got to that place. But yes, for the right couple, it can really bring in a breath of fresh air. It can be relieving. 
it can be very therapeutic. You know, I was working with um, one woman who just throughout her relationship history, she always had um, codependency and jealousy issues and she'd sort of get over enmeshed in these relationships. And she found that opening up the relationship, although it was incredibly challenging and incredibly uncomfortable, she really had to learn to live with and tolerate some of these feelings of distress and jealousy, but in a very safe, processed way. And I think it was a real therapeutic journey to be able to master these difficult um, emotions. And so that also brought a sense of kind of catharsis to her. You know, we're talking, but we've talked about fantasy, we've talked about opening up a relationship um, as ways to build intimacy or, you know, reawaken mm -hmm. a couple's sex, sex life. I'm also curious about the misconceptions men and women have about each other and sexuality. Like, I was thinking about how, you know, a lot of women can't come from sex mm -hmm. um, and men may have an expectation that penetration is mm -hmm. th the way to go and that's the, you know they have to really perform yeah. and then um, yeah so I'm curious about those misconceptions yeah. that men and women have about just because I imagine they can get in the way of a healthy sex life yeah yeah I uh, I think the one that you just talked about is really one that's been very um, important to me over the years which is just the shift from intercourse to outer course and that I think that a lot of couples struggle under what I sort of call the intercourse discourse or that you know penis to vagina intercourse really should be the main food on one's sexual menu and everything else is either an appetizer or a dessert I think the intercourse discourse can really be um crippling like um you know, for especially for a lot of men, you know, if you if you're concerned about the size of your penis, if you have genital self-esteem issues, if you're worried about maintaining an erection or um, having an orgasm or having an orgasm too soon, you know, the pressure of every sexual event really being intercourse based um, can be extremely stressful um, and sometimes paralyzing. And um, I also hear the, the same thing from women. And I think for women, it can be difficult in, in different ways. I mean, it can be very, very frustrating to have a lot of sexual experiences that are semi-arousing but don't result in, in orgasm. And I think we live in a culture where media likes to say that uh, orgasms are less important to women than they are to men. I personally always find that to be, you know, very frustrating. We live in a culture where women don't have orgasms as frequently as men, but that's a result of the intercourse discourse. I mean, women have uh, as much orgasmic capacity, if not much more orgasmic capacity than men. Uh, I mean, really, most women, whether they're having multiple orgasms or not, from a biological perspective, have the capacity to experience multiple orgasms in ways that men cannot. So I always get very frustrated when I read some article that says, oh, women are more concerned with the relational aspects of sex than Not the... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I don't want to speak for two women in the room, but I, it yeah. frustrates me. No, it frustrates Yeah, I find it frustrating too, yeah. And, um, and then I think, you know, sex that's really intercourse-based, 
um, can often be painful sex if somebody's not, you know, feeling aroused and, and connected. And so I think, um, yeah, I think the expectation that um, we should be having intercourse can be, you know, really crippling. I think of one guy I had in here just recently. I mean, he has such performance anxiety. He feels like a woman. He's, he's a young guy. He feels like if he's with a woman, particularly this woman he's dating, that she needs to have three orgasms every time. They need, they need to be intercourse-based. Um, he really believes this. And, um, and as a result, he suffers from tremendous ED. And so his, his girlfriend doesn't know this, but he will take, he takes five milligrams of Cialis every day. So he's permanently dosed on Cialis. And then prior to when he knows he's going to have sex, he'll enhance that with Viagra, often with a little bit of wine to lower his inhibitions and a little bit of marijuana to lower his in- so inhibitions. So he's just completely drugged. <laughs> and, and honestly, she has little to no idea that any of this is happening. I just said, like, what about, like, outer course? What about the shift from intercourse to outer course and making love not just with your penis, but with your hands, your mouth, your mind? He won't hear of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in your book, She Comes First, you really talk about um, the core. I mean, I, I love how you distinguish between foreplay, core play, yeah. and then more play. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. But you also put a lot of emphasis, I mean, as the book is titled, on having the woman orgasm first and not from intercourse, but from outer course. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, um, you know, I think that book was like um, a big effort on my part to normalize my own sense of sexual inadequacy. I was coming to sex again, as I said, somebody who suffered from premature ejaculation and felt enormous pressure um, to be able to maintain genital intercourse. Uh, I didn't have an understanding of the role of the clitoris. Um, so I was ill clitorate, as I like to say. <laughs> A cunning <laughs> linguist. <laughs> All of those puns are there. But I, I had no idea that the clitoris was the uh, powerhouse of sort of the female orgasm and that most of the sensitive nerve endings that lead to female orgasm are on the surface of the vulva and that once you even go past two inches within the vagina, there is not a lot of uh, nerve sensitivity. Um, and so um, all of these discoveries um, about uh, clitoral stimulation and that many women enjoy oral sex as much if not more than intercourse and an intercourse plus model where you're doing more than just penis vagina intercourse all of that really was mind-blowing and liberating for me and I went from somebody who avoided sex and dreaded sex and even stopped dating because what's the point of dating if it's gonna lead to sex um, to somebody who um, really felt sort of much more sexually empowered and was able to be much more sexually embodied and just in, enjoy it. So that book was really um, my attempt to normalize my own experience. So the book continues to do well. It continues to resonate. 
men and women buy it. it it was written for men i was always shocked that women bought it first for their partners sometimes for themselves today i get letters from moms who buy it for their sons um i recently got a letter from yeah, yeah. <laughs> i recently got a letter from a mom who has twins who are the same age a boy and a girl and she bought a copy for each of them because she wanted her son to know how to pleasure and she wanted her daughter to know uh what to expect um sometimes people have said well it's a little rigid or it's a little like overemphasizes oral sex or clitoral stimulation and i understand that i can relate that there may be a certain like feeling of rigidity in it but again it really came out of i think my own desire to normalize my own inadequacies and hence the feeling that it was a little bit of a um a manifesto almost and i would say in our culture there's a lot of rigidity around you know, sex as penetration yeah so provides a nice counterpoint to that well, and I also got the sense, too, that for a man, especially who does have a lot of performance anxiety and who does put a lot of pressure on himself, that it really takes that away if he gets... Are you getting my stomach growling, by the way? I haven't had lunch. <laughs> oh, no. no. Is that coming through? No. no. I'm always sensitive that somehow whenever I end up in front of a microphone, maybe hungry. I have to look beyond food to like some sort of inner something or other. It's but, all yeah. this talk but about eating vaginas, eating vaginas. Eating vaginas. Eating vaginas. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> One thing that's interesting that I've noticed, though, is a lot of times men come in or write to me saying, I really want to take this approach and I want to make love with less of my penis and more of my mouth and my hands. And my female partner, my girlfriend or my wife is very closed off to it and really says, I only want intercourse or I I only want penetration or not interested in oral sex. So very often it is the female partner who's a little Well I think unfortunately, you know, a lot of women are socialized and and in our culture are um ashamed of our vaginas and there's a lot of kind of stigma around what it looks like, what it sure. smells like, and, and there's a lot, I think... Am I normal? Does it look normal? normal? Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot of embarrassment around it. And I, a lot it's much of it, more vulnerable. It's very vulnerable. Right. I think a lot of men don't understand that, that it's a much more vulnerable act of intimacy for, for women. Well, and I think what you describe so well in your book is that it's not just about the foreplay or even the sexual stimulation it's also about anxiety reducing techniques too and to really make a woman feel comfortable is half of half of it if not more and to slow things down i mean to your point about relaxation a lot of men even when they engage in oral sex it's like fast yeah. and they don't really know what they're doing <laughs> they go right for the yeah, and you're like, ah. yeah i mean for me in my own sexual journey and i'm definitely like i'm not a thrill seeker i'm sort of like a less is more but i think for me the big journey was just like being able to turn off my mind and just get very present regardless of what i'm doing just sort of like lose myself in this merged shared experience and turn off the thinking part of my brain, the performance part of my brain. And that's just amazing. I mean, to me, that's the biggest blessing of sex, especially in this day and age where there's so much to worry about and so many distractions to just like 
really like I guess it might be the way like I don't run anymore so it would be like that moment where you're just sort of in the running or if I played music maybe where I merge with the music in some way but like sex can be this way of just kind of getting out of your own head and just merging in this sort of more experiential space. And I think that so often interferes with desire and excitement is when you do get distracted with your own thoughts and you do get caught up in your own head because that really takes away from the pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why fantasy is so important too. You know, there have been it's interesting when I when I interview women about fantasy, many, and you can corroborate this or not, will say they often fantasize during sex. Sometimes it's about the person they're having sex with. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it's just sort of random internal channel surfing. And when you talk to men, a lot of men will say fantasize during sex. No, I'm just like totally into being there unless they happen to be uh, really anxious and they're looking to kind of turn off their performance anxiety um, but in general, I found that women sort of fantasize, say that they fantasize more during sex. And what's really interesting too to, for me is that there was um, studies done using fMRI scanners, looking at the differences between men and women as they were getting aroused and having orgasms. And in the female brain, unlike the male brains, as women were getting more and more aroused, parts of the brain that were associated with stress and anxiety went dim and kind of deactivated. And the researchers said it's like women are getting themselves into this trance-like state. And for the sexual brain to turn on, the stressful brain, the anxious brain needs to turn off. That was not actually the case with men. And so I think if you sort of look at female sexuality and say that being relaxed, getting into that place of mental deactivation, um, not being anxious is so crucial to arousal and orgasm, then it makes sense why fantasy would be so important to women as well, because fantasy is a way of getting into a, a mental space in which you're really everything outside of the bedroom doesn't really exist anymore. I do this in my own sex life. I try and encourage couples to bring a lot of novelty, fantasy, and newness to the early stages of generating arousal, and then to kind of transition into some kind of sexual routine that's already been operationalized. It's already stored in the part of your brain where you know how to ride a bicycle, you know how to potentially drive a car. There's just like, you know how to take out your keys and open a door. It's like gets stored in the part of the brain where processes don't have to be thought about anymore. They're just kind of automatic. And so it's, a, it's an interesting dialectic between novelty and familiarity. Well, it sounds like the excitement is a really important part to kind of stimulate the whole event. Yeah, I... I look at my relationship with my wife and after 20 years of being together and arguing a lot and really realizing that we're different people in so many ways and having kids and having disagreements and having to share our space together, I am so thankful that we are sexually attracted to each other and that we have this kind of chemistry between us that can't quite be articulated but really brings us together because if we didn't have that, I don't think we would have 
been able to make it through all of this. It's like the sex is a replenishment. It's a glue. And I feel really sorry for and sad about couples who don't have that connection and chemistry or picked each other because they were each other's best friends or it made a lot of sense or knew from the beginning that the sex part wasn't really there, wasn't really strong, but um, thought that they could cultivate it or grow it. And in some cases they can to some extent, but I just think that um, I just think that sex as sort of a glue in a long-term relationship is so primary. On the flip side, do you ever see couples who have a really strong sexual chemistry and a kind of magnetic sexual pull, but but have so many problems yeah. relationally? Yeah, yeah, I do. Like that's the thing, and um, you know, very often the pattern where I see that is um, couples who sort of just have this unsafe, insecure kind of anxious attachment foundation like they just don't ever really feel safe or trusting or secure in the relationship and so there'll be a lot of arguing often to just generate relational attention to make the relationship a focus let's argue and fight because then we're connected and then use sex as a way of sort of repairing from that rupture so it's like rupture repair rupture repair and that becomes a pattern because the attachment itself isn't sound yeah it sounds like one kind of fuels the other yeah 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 Yeah. those couples i think can stay in it very often though for the long haul in that pattern um longer than couples who um, wonder, can we create something that wasn't really there from the beginning? Right. And I imagine because they're so insecurely or anxiously attached that really that separation is going to be all the more difficult yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And do you think that these types of couples can make it work? Can make go from... I've seen both both sides work. I've seen couples who had very um, strong sexual magnetism or strong center of sexual center of gravity and not much else, um, figure out how to create secure attachments with each other. And I've actually seen couples who I've been surprised to seem to not have strong a strong sexual connection figure out how to cultivate it. So I've been pleasantly surprised in both scenarios. Hope for both yeah. types of yeah. relationships. Yeah. So with that said, we've got a lot of sexual wisdom for me today, but we do have a question about if you were to give a piece of advice to our listeners around sex, what would it be? Um, I think if I were to give advice, I would say think about what turns you on. Um, Think about the erotic themes that turn you on. Um, Think about stuff that's taboo taboo, that turns you on and share it with your partner in the form of a sexual fantasy. That's a good one. That's a really good one. And if you had one piece of advice or just advice about um, relationships for our listeners. Yeah. I think the big theme that I see in relationships is um, that when couples are talking 
about sensitive issues, they are often either wittingly or unwittingly engaging each other's defenses. And so most couples, when they try and talk about a difficult topic, are already sort of on guard, and whether they're doing it constructively or unconstructively, are still escalating defenses. And then it just becomes a question of how good are we at repairing out of this. But I think underneath um, those defenses, there's always a vulnerability. And so if your partner can say something to you, complain to you, express an emotion, and you can feel a little attacked or a little activated or a little anxious, but you can stay in that moment and look at your partner and say, what is the underlying vulnerability? And you can tune into the vulnerability and create a space to hold the vulnerability and soothe the vulnerability. Um, I think that that's a unique skill. And I learned that really as a parent because I have two sons and I have a 13-year-old. And so I'm almost 40 years older than my son. And we will fight and he'll get me so mad and I'll forget that I'm 40 years older than him and he's just a 13-year-old. And he'll storm off and he'll run in a room and he'll close the door and I'll be so furious and I'll be so glad that he went into that fucking room where he deserves to be because he's such an asshole and a jerk, you know? And then I'll realize, you know what? He's 13. I'm his parent. Underneath all of that rage is a vulnerability. And it's not his job to parent me in these situations. It's my job to be able to go into that room and somehow soothe that vulnerability, which I do. And uh, it, I've had to learn how to do it. But I think the same thing, although my wife seems to be more of a peer to me and appears to be my age and more mature than my 13-year-old son, when she's expressing a vulnerability, I think vulnerabilities are ageless. I think they exist in an underground, in a shadow land, and in a basement that's outside of time, that doesn't experience time in a linear way. And so if we can, in a way, tune in and parent our partner's vulnerabilities, that's an important skill to cultivate. It's mm, beautiful. Yeah. And just as our vulnerabilities are timeless, our defenses can be very young and immature. Yes, they can. Adolescent. <laughs> they can be, or they can be very seasoned and very honed. Yeah. They can be like ninja warriors who can kill with a blade that you don't even see coming. So what's next for you, Ian? Um, um, what's next for me is I continue to enjoy my patient work. I continue to enjoy uh, lecturing and educating other therapists about sex therapy. And hopefully there'll be a little TV project in the near future um, that I'll be able to talk about as well. We hope so. We hope so. Thanks. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Anytime. Always happy. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening. Thank you to Ian for joining us today on the podcast. We also want to thank Point and Passing for their original music for our podcast and website design. You can purchase She Comes First by Ian Kerner on Amazon. Be sure to subscribe to Lovelink on iTunes and leave us a review. 
You can visit the Lovelink website at www.lovelink.co to read curated articles on love and sex, submit a question into our advice column, and find our other projects on romance. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletters. Tune into our next podcast with Erin Breslow to learn more about how to have an open relationship. See you next time. Mm-hmm.